Welcome to the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Now here's your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador was ranked the happiest province in Canada. And that's good news because quite often we're at the bottom of the scale when it comes to health. But is there a link between happiness and health? And is there an opportunity to leverage that happiness that we have here in the province to improve our health? Well, to find the answer, I had to look halfway around the world. The Kingdom of Bhutan is a landlocked country in the Eastern Himalayas, located in South Asia between China in the north and India in the south. It's a mountainous country, and there's less than a million people that live there. But this small nation is making an impact globally when it comes to how we measure health. Gross national happiness is something you may not have heard of before, but it was first coined by the fourth king of Bhutan in the 1970s. The premise of gross domestic happiness is that sustainable development should take a holistic approach towards progress in the country and give equal importance to non-economic aspects of well-being. For example, in Canada, we measure the GDP or gross domestic product and financial scales, but don't consider the holistic view of how we judge our progress. This approach to gross national happiness was actually adopted by the UN a decade ago to help guide other countries achieve what Bhutan has done for its people. Gross national happiness is a single number index developed from four pillars in nine domains. Those pillars include good governance, sustainable socioeconomic development, cultural preservation, and environmental conservation. The nine domains are psychological well-being, health, education, time use, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, and living standards. Now these domains represent each of the components of well-being of the Bhutanese people, and the term well-being often refers to fulfilling the conditions of having a good life. When we look at the challenges facing our province, in particular when it comes to the social determinants of health, well-being, and our quality of life, I was intrigued to learn more about this philosophy of Bhutan. So I reached out to Dr. Shensho Lamu, who's an educator who received her doctorate from my alma mater, UNB. Her doctoral work focused on the concepts of happiness, and she's written articles on how to educate for happiness. Currently, she's the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Now, we coordinated our schedule, and with the time change, had a call at midnight our time and 9 a.m. her time. Now, this was one of the most interesting interviews we've ever had in the show. So I hope you enjoy it, and it helps shift your perspective that there are other things we should be looking at other than just economic prosperity if we want to live a good life. Hi, Chencho. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you could join us today. It's such an interesting topic. We are literally talking from opposite sides of the planet right now. You are uh, an educator, you're a researcher, and you are involved with the government and some of the education in Bhutan. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and where you live? Sure. So all my life, I have worked uh, in the education uh, sector. I started my career as a high school teacher, then moved on to become a teacher educator. And I also worked in education reform projects uh, for the Royal Education Council, which uh, was started by His Majesty back in 2007, eight. And uh, in 2014, I um, resigned from my civil service work 
uh, to go and study uh, and then came back and joined the civil society work after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were able to get a, a PhD as well with that, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, I got that from uh, UNB and thanks to my um, very close friend and supervisor who passed on, Dr. Anne Sherman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got my PhD thanks to her supervision and yeah. Dr. Roger Salt, of course. Yeah. Right. And that's our connection is that I'm UNB alumni as well. Uh, so, you know, small, small world. And for yeah. a lot of people listening, they may not be familiar with Bhutan. So can you tell us a little bit about your country? So um, Bhutan uh, is uh, a very small landlocked uh, Himalayan country, uh, and we are a population of a little over 700,000, and we are located between uh, China in the north and India in the southeast. Uh, and we also became a democratic country back in 2008, and we have had uh, uh, three rounds of elections. And I think uh, just like young democracies around the world, each time we have elected a new political party to power. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it was a monarchy as well uh, for uh, generations, correct? Yeah, that that's right. That's right. And um, uh, right now we have our fifth king, mm -hmm. um, who is still very active, uh, who sets the vision and you know guides the country and people look up to him as the um, a figure that unifies uh, Bhutan, you know, and uh, it's in him that people have the uh, you know highest faith and trust. Mm -hmm. And and, and you yourself, you work with the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. So what's your current role there? Yeah, so um, I started working with the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy from 2016 when I was still, uh, you know, doing my uh, PhD. Um, I came back for data collection, and then I really wanted my uh, dissertation to be grounded into the realities and wanted to connect, still connect with the communities around me. So I started working for BCMD um, back in 2016, and... Um, Currently, I am the um, uh, executive director for the center. Uh, the center actually was um, established back in 2008 by its founder, um, Soksen Pek Doji. And that was also the time when the country was transitioning into a democratic form of uh, governance, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the center that I work for works with... Uh, a diverse uh, cross-section of beneficiaries, uh, ranging from youth to educators, local government officials, civil society members, vulnerable groups, uh, including people with disabilities, parliamentarians, you know, and we promote uh, uh, civic education, media literacy, producing Bhutan-centric resources, and um, to expand safe and open civic space. Hmm. That's quite a that's quite a, a big scope of work you have there, <laughs> and, and a relatively new organization. So I'm, that's why I'm sure you're very yeah. very busy with that. The work is, is exciting. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good when people get a chance to go study and then apply themselves in a field that that you know really relates to you know what they're passionate about. And one of the things that's really special about Bhutan that really stands out around the world is because of your measure of gross national happiness. Can you tell me a bit about how that all began? Like that's a relatively foreign concept to a lot of people, I think. 
I think uh, the concept of happiness has been there in a culture throughout, but I think it was back in 1970s when a reporter in India asked our fourth king about the country's GDP. And I believe uh, the fourth king responded by saying that uh, in a country, uh, gross national happiness is more important than uh, GDP, meaning that uh, uh, you know material progress is not a holistic measure of development, but there are other aspects to life uh, that are important to our development and sense of well-being um, as well. So I, I think that concept may be very new for many people, but for a Buddhist, right, who believes in interdependent existence and impermanence in life, the concept is quite um, commonplace yeah. because our culture teaches us to, you know, tame our greed, uh, to be modest in our needs and to seek uh, the middle path. So, so I think I think for any Bhutanese that concept would resonate well, but it may be difficult for you know somebody from a different culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in our culture, you know, if, when we find somebody really working hard, trying to accumulate wealth and become rich, uh, uh, you know, we jokingly say, but quite uh, serious in the meaning as well. You know, to take a break and take it slow because when we this world eventually, you know, we go empty-handed. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, the concept of GNH is to teach uh, balance and moderation in life. Yeah, that's that's that that's very true in so many levels. So it, it's obviously ingrained in your culture. So how can you measure gross national happiness within a population? So we have uh, in our country we have this um, institute called the Center for Bhutan Studies. Mm -hmm. uh, it is recently renamed because there was a merging of, uh, you know, organizations. We are undergoing structural reformation um, currently in the country, so it has been renamed. But that center is responsible for, uh, you know, studying happiness um, in Bhutan and to guide uh, policies and decisions. So uh, under this philosophy, there are four pillars, right? And the idea is that... Uh, Economic uh, development needs to be balanced with the uh, cultural preservation, mm -hmm. uh, um, environmental conservation, and good governance. And uh, there are nine domains, which include education, health, living standard, environment, culture, community vitality, time use, uh, psychological well-being. So with these nine domains, there are 72 indicators. So this... Center for Bhutan Studies conducts this uh, nationwide um, survey and uh, check people's level of happiness. And then, uh, you know, they compare current uh, happiness level with the past and look at uh, what could be the reasons behind the increase in happiness or decrease of it, and then see which domain needs uh, improvement and attention uh, from the government. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, I think that is how uh, uh, we are measuring it. And we also have, um, you know, policy uh, GNH screening tools that uh, policymakers use to look at a policy and see whether it really conforms to our philosophy of happiness or not. And this is done by a panel of experts and they would measure any uh, policy, new policy or development uh, plans 
through that uh, screening tool and uh, advise the government. We're here with Dr. Shenshu Lamu, who is the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures of societal progress. This happiness index, which was developed in a country of less than a million people, is being adopted around the world to help improve the quality of life for the 8 billion people on this planet. We'll be right back after the break. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Shenshu Lamu, who is the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures for societal progress. With the Health Accord NL identifying the social determinants of health as the main driver for our poor health outcomes, we reached out to Dr. Lamu, who lives halfway around the world, to learn what their country is doing to improve the standard of living and quality of life for its citizens. She's explaining the four pillars and nine domains that make up this happiness index and include things like environmental stewardship, mental health, health, education, and others. And when all these measures are put together, they can provide insights into the happiness and the fulfillment of the citizens in their community. So let's get back to Dr. Lamu. You know, one of the things that comes back when I think about this is that how important is it for the population to understand and to participate in creating this balance through these nine different factors and these four different pillars in order for these sort of policies and this sort of approach to be effective? Or is that something that's sort of inherent to your culture that these things are already valued and it doesn't require any guidance for the population to sort of follow suit? I think there is philosophical resonance with people, right? Uh, because our culture teaches us to uh, be, be moderate, to balance uh, things in life and to um, adopt a more sustainable uh, way of uh, living. So I think there is the philosophical uh, resonance with people and people does not need to be uh, guided. But I guess when um, enumerators go out to collect data, uh, you know, they have to approach uh, people from different walks of life. And uh, if they come across a farmer who is dealing with a daily uh, bread and butter issue, I, I think that's where they would, uh, you know, feel challenged. Right? <laughs> but uh, till till date, I think the response rate has been very good. Uh, you know, there is... Um, uh, you know, the survey is conducted in uh, 20 districts in the country, and it covers both rural, urban, good representation of gender, different age groups, and so on. So I think it is pretty uh, well done. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it also sounds like you're taking into account some of the challenges that we have here where we live, which are the social determinants of health uh, and some mm -hmm. of these other aspects that may not be as tangible but like mental health, for example, as these are all things that are, we're focusing on at, in our home, trying to improve the health of, of the population. How has this approach evolved over time? You said it was really adopted in the 70s, even though it's been underlying the whole time, but it became to the forefront in the 70s. How has it changed since it's begun? If we look at uh, survey findings uh, of 2010 and 15, I think the country's happiness level has improved and the report uh, alludes to, you know, improved uh, service conditions, uh, living standard, income, 
uh, you know, and participation in, uh, you know, cultural activities and uh, so on. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the four pillars and the nine domains do not change, but it is the indicators that change. I think initially uh, back in 2008, I think it started with fewer indicators, but now we have uh, 72 uh, indicators uh, to assess the happiness level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like with any statistics, it, sample size is key. And as you get more and more data, it starts telling you where you should be looking. And Right. That, that kind of brings me to your research topic. Your doctoral research focused on conceptions of happiness grounded in the realities of urban youth. Now, I'm very sure you could talk for days on this topic, but in particular, what does happiness mean for our young people? Yeah, so that that's very interesting. Um, you know, um, when I studied uh, young people's conception of happiness, you know, so on the one side, we have this uh, national conception of happiness as in the gross national happiness defined by the four pillars and the nine domains, right? And then I have this group of young people uh, with whom I'm trying to study their understanding of uh, happiness. So my research shows that uh, for young people, uh, happiness is, uh, you know, some sort of a state of flow, um, a complete, uh, you know, engrossment into an activity uh, that matches their interests and potentials. You know, for instance, they talk a lot about co-curricular activities in their school um, as something that gives them a lot of happiness. And it is because in this co-curricular activities, they, they get to choose which co-curricular activities they want to be in, right? Mm -hmm. That matches their interest as well as potentials. Uh, so that leads me to another conception of happiness for young people. And it means to be able to uh, do something that um, uh, they, they have um, the potential for. And young people also talk a lot about how um, you know happiness means to be able to fulfill their uh, duties to significant people in their life. And they talk a lot about their duty to their parents as uh, you know sons and daughters and as siblings. Mm -hmm. So uh, th this is quite a different uh, conception of happiness at an individual level versus the um, you know country's uh, notion of happiness. That's interesting. And I think about, you know, being in that flow state, I think about the challenges that we face with our young people where we live, where social media is constantly buying for time and media sources. So that flow state becomes more elusive all the time for people where they get a chance to just be in a, in a good state of mind, doing something that they love. When you educate young people in particular, how, how are you able to sort of teach them about the, the importance of happiness as they go through their various stages of life? Because I'm sure happiness changes as we grow and age and go through each season of our life. I think it's counterproductive to teach happiness directly. Mm -hmm. um, in, and in Bhutan, I think there is no direct teaching uh, to young people to be happy, but rather you know, nurturing those um, uh, conditions that enable them to um, you know, enjoy more fulfilling uh, life. Mm -hmm. And in, in the case of young people, what I found out that, uh, you know, the conditions that enable them to enjoy 
uh, happiness and a sense of well-being is a supportive relationship with teachers, you know, family members and peers, right, in the schools. And also the freedom to be and the freedom to do, meaning an environment where they can exercise uh, agency. So I think these are the two very important, uh, you know, conditions that uh, contribute to young people's, um, you know, experience of happiness. And um, in Bhutan, the educating for happiness uh, is not a direct teaching, but rather putting in, in those conditions that uh, will foster happiness in young people and teaching those uh, you know, beliefs and values that resonate with uh, the notion of happiness. For instance, uh, you know, the understanding of life as uh, interdependent in nature, life as impermanent, uh, and um, uh, so all, all these, I think, cultural beliefs and values um, are important to uh, to be infused into the school culture uh, so that our young people are more attuned to enjoy more fulfilling life. Yeah, well, that's perfect. That makes perfect sense from what you've been saying is understanding these variables and then changing policy and processes and whatever to give the best uh, highest likelihood for people to thrive and so that makes perfect sense with that you know so okay so we'll go back to these four pillars here for a second because the one you just mentioned about environmental conservation is extremely important to the world right now it's a topic that's increasingly important to no matter where you live um can you explain why it's just so prominent as part of this gross national happiness I think uh, environmental conservation is an important pillar of GNH because I think uh, we cannot talk about um, uh, life sustaining on this earth without uh, talking about uh, environment, right? Uh, we we only have uh, one earth uh, to share. So I think uh, that that's why environmental conservation is so important uh to this uh, concept of uh, a gnh mm-hmm. and um as a small country uh, in the himalayas um uh we are going to be one of the uh, you know first countries to experience the wrath of uh, you know climate change and global warming we are already experiencing loss of um, uh, water sources melting of uh, glacial lakes so i think uh, all this environmental impact has a huge bearing on, um, you know, the sustainability of our lives. So therefore, this um, you know notion of um, environmental conservation is so important uh, to our development of philosophy. Uh, definitely, and actually, uh, I traveled up to our to the subarctic where we live this year and saw how climate change impacted the Inuit population that live close to the water and rely on sea ice to be able to travel to traditional hunting grounds and to get firewood and to go to the recreation sites and, and really important cultural activities, and um, and it was impacting them. So I can see how that would affect a place that's as you know yeah. as, as, as you you have very you know unique geography being in the mountains. So I can see that and yesterday you know i was reading in the newspaper how we have lost what 69 percent of our you know water sources and that is scary Mm. because that is our lifeline right if we don't have water that's the end of the uh, life yeah and uh, at this at this rate i think um it is scary. I think we need to do something. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> to, to make our lives just sustainable. 
We're here with Dr. Shenshu Lamu, who is the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures of societal progress. This happiness index, which was developed in a country of less than a million people, is being adopted around the world to help improve the quality of life for the 8 billion people on this planet. We'll be right back after the break. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Shenshu Lamu, who is the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures for societal progress. With the Health Accord NL identifying the social determinants of health as the main driver for our poor health outcomes, we reached out to Dr. Lamu, who lives halfway around the world, to learn what their country is doing to improve the standard of living and quality of life for its citizens. She's explaining the four pillars and nine domains that make up this happiness index and include things like environmental stewardship, mental health, health, education, and others. And when all these measures are put together, they can provide insights into the happiness and the fulfillment of the citizens in their community. So let's get back to Dr. Lamu. When we talk about another one of your pillars, which is cultural activities, it gives you a sense of identity to people, but does it also have an economic impact as well? Because I know a lot of these will actually, you know, do drive the economy. What about the creations of jobs and programs and things like that based on your culture? Yeah, that that's a, a very big uh, question. Um, I think preservation of culture is a double-edged sword, uh, personally, I think. It can give uh, happiness as well as uh, stump happiness. I think when uh, cultural uh, preservation is imposed, that I think it undermines happiness because then it, it stumps cultural evolution, right? Yeah. And uh, to try to fossilize a culture is, I think, against uh, the grain of nature, which is change. And uh, when change is stopped, I think that is when it stumps happiness. Mm. But uh, a gradual evolution of culture, uh, not a complete fracture from the tradition, but a slow evolution and slow infusion of the culture with the contemporary ideas and practice, which allows for creativity and change. I think that is what promotes uh, you know, happiness. And uh, in Bhutan, I am already witnessing, um, you know, this uh, slow evolution in our art, dress, food habit, music, you know, festivals. Uh, and if you if you look at our film industry, it has evolved over the years. If you look at our dances, there are new, you know, genres introduced. So I think. Uh, there is much more a vibrant uh, culture in Bhutan with this gradual uh, evolution. And it has, it is creating jobs because many young people are into the entertainment um, sector, though it is small. I think it does create, um, uh, you know, um, avenues for income generation that contributes to uh, economic development. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Uh, same with us. I mean, our, our we have a historic tradition here. We have the oldest city in North America where we live. It was a fishing hub. And of course, mm-hmm. things have changed with the times, but there's those elements that we've kept with us, which is obviously a, an important part of, of, of our past and something we want to continue with. But but again, doesn't define us uh, going forward in the future. But one thing that may define Bhutan on the global stage for history is that in July 2011, the General Assembly of the UN adopted happiness, which is called uh, towards a holistic definition of developing mm-hmm. happiness. And that was based off of the work that you have done in Bhutan. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, we are quite um, you know, happy uh, that uh, you know there was this adoption of uh, the GNH or happiness uh, as a new uh, development uh, paradigm. It, it is quite... Uh, a significant contribution for a small country like Bhutan, uh, I think, because because we are small and uh, we we are not industrialized. Uh, uh, you know, our, our role in uh, impacting more sustainable way of life uh, is very small. Whereas I think uh, the developed uh, countries have a bigger role uh, to play as well as they can make a huge impact. So I think uh, for Bhutan, uh, that that is seminal because uh, uh, when we believe that when we infuse the global community with this idea of, uh, you know, happiness, development uh, as a concept that has to be measured not only by uh, GDP but by a more holistic uh, lens mm-hmm. um, uh, that that is uh, quite um, a seminal uh, achievement for Bhutan and I think uh, for Bhutan the rest of the world needs to understand this and come on board mm-hmm. because we are at the receiving end of uh, climate change and global warming Right. And the industrialized world, uh, the countries are driving consumerism. uh, And we are, I think, depleting uh, our Earth's natural resources at a rate which is way beyond uh, its uh, ability to regenerate. Mm. Uh, I remember back in Canada, you know, I lost my computer twice because my uh, three year old toddler, you know, spilled. uh, uh, juice one time and then tea over it one time <laughs> and uh yeah and it was relatively cheaper to buy a new one than to repair it yes right right yeah. and uh, same, same with phones and uh you know and now with the social media worldwide web uh, you know we are exposed to so many uh things that drive consumerism so i think uh these are the kind of uh culture that is in uh, the uh, that that is promoted by big industries and companies uh, well, we need to give a second look at that right if we are to experience more sustainable way of life I, I agree with that completely and I think that you know when you look at some of the the things that were programmed you know quite often it is we need to get the new iPhone we need to get the newest brightest shiniest thing. But ultimately, yeah. you know, is that going to make us happier in the long run? Is that going to help the planet? And and I do understand what you're saying as well, that if you apply the principles that you're doing in a relatively small place to a large industrial country, that could make a massive impact when it comes to the, you know, the way that we're, we're dealing with our environment around us. You know, are yeah. there a few key lessons um, from Bhutan's approach that would be helpful when they're looking at not just that economic side, but also the social side, like outside of 
the planet outside of maybe having um, a stronger economy in certain ways, but like how are people themselves impacted by having happiness top of mind when it comes to their day-to-day lives? Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, in our daily lives, we don't even think about happiness as a goal, right? I think um, happiness is a byproduct when you pursue something which is valuable to um, us. So I think uh, the uh, key um, uh, thing here is understanding uh you know what you value in life i think what when what you value in life is measured i think that that um, you know it perpetuates the value that you accord to it so if if you go on measuring the income that you are making and the material accumulation and asset that you want to have then i think that is what uh, gets valued even more so I think um, happiness is not there in our consciousness, in our day-to-day living. Uh, but uh, to understand that uh, gross national happiness is the guiding principle behind all developmental activities gives us a more a complex lens to look at uh, issues, complex uh, lens to look at policies and developmental plans. And I think that creates a, a creative tension, which is not necessarily uh, bad. You know, for instance, if there is a proposal that says, you know, it's going to increase the income by this much, uh, this much uh, percentage, then the philosophy of GNH forces us to look at that not only through an economic aspect, but also look at how that proposal will have an impact on uh, you know culture uh, our society uh, and uh, the environment so i think that helps people put on a more uh, complex lens to look at issues that and that is interest in a more a sustainable way of uh, life i think we're here with dr shenshu lamu who is the program director for the bhutan center for media and democracy Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures of societal progress. This happiness index, which was developed in a country of less than a million people, is being adopted around the world to help improve the quality of life for the 8 billion people on this planet. We'll be right back after the break. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Shenshu Lamu, who is the program director for the Bhutan Center for Media and Democracy. Her work focuses on the concepts of happiness and is explaining the Gross National Happiness Index of Bhutan, which emphasizes quality of life over purely economic measures for societal progress. With the Health Accord NL identifying the social determinants of health as the main driver for our poor health outcomes, we reached out to Dr. Lamu, who lives halfway around the world, to learn what their country is doing to improve the standard of living and quality of life for its citizens. She's explaining the four pillars and nine domains that make up this happiness index and include things like environmental stewardship, mental health, health, education, and others. And when all these measures are put together, they can provide insights into the happiness and the fulfillment of the citizens in their community. So let's get back to Dr. Lamu. So we're starting to wind down here now. I found this extremely interesting. This has been a topic I've been interested in my whole life. Um, 
you've made so many great points about environmental stewardship, about uh, people keeping these uh, things top of mind that help guide policies, which can ultimately make our societies better. Uh, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we close off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, this is based off my experience of having uh, lived in, uh, you know, in Australia and in Canada. And I already mentioned this earlier on. I think uh, the industrialized countries uh, can do much more, uh, right, in terms of uh, um, making this uh, earth more sustainable. And one thing that uh, they can do is not to drive consumerism too much you know and to not to look at uh, the profit but to look at the impact uh, on, on the environment as i was mentioning um in, in the developed countries it is relatively easier to buy uh, cheaper to buy uh, new stuff than to repair mm -hmm. but i think we need to uh bring this culture back of uh, repairing and re reusing, um, you know, gadgets and stuff. Because if, if we drive the scale of production, it only means that uh, we rob the earth of its resources, right? And on the other side, we generate waste. And for a country like Bhutan, that is import driven. Um, uh, we, we have no, uh, we have no clout. Uh, we are just swept by uh, this, um, you know, wave of consumerism that is driven by industrialized world. And uh, being human beings, we have, uh, you know, vices, you know, our vices, right? Um, and thanks to uh, internet and social media, uh, you know, we we we. Um, we are quite quick in picking up, um, you know, faster fashion and. Uh, uh, things like that. So I think uh, the developed uh, world uh, countries have a lot uh, more important uh, role to play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and for our own country, right? I think uh, when we uh, measure the happiness next time, I I hope that we will take into consideration um, the uh, the um, fact that social media has become so pervasive uh, in our lives. Uh, that uh, you know it is eating into our, our family lives, social lives, and um, uh, it it has uh, impact on our mental health. So I hope for our own country, the next time when we measure um, happiness, I think we take this emerging trend into consideration, uh, the pervasiveness of uh, social media in our lives, because social media is becoming another space just like the social space, the natural space, right? It is uh, a digital space that uh, has a huge influence on uh, people's uh, way of life, our values. So I think we need to take that into consideration the next time. I agree. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'm 100% on board with what you're saying. And and I also really appreciate you taking the time. It's a, it's a holiday uh, in your home and uh, you took the time to join us today. And I just wanted to say I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this invitation. And um, and uh, Canada holds a special, uh, you know, space in my heart. Uh, that is where I really experienced uh, a change uh, in myself, um, you know, as a person interested in academia and continuing to 
you know, um, do some academic work in the civil society organization that I have. And I have so many good friends in Canada I, that yeah. I, uh, I, you know, keep in touch with. So thank you for this invitation. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Lamu, for joining me today. With mental health being one of the biggest challenges we face in our communities and preventable illness right there behind it, I thought it was relevant to look at what's being done in other parts of the world to prioritize quality of life. What Bhutan has been able to show is that focusing on having a good life full of happiness is another approach to measuring the success of a community. When principles like environmental stewardship, health education, mental health and time use are top of mind for individuals, then a community can find balance and health. The good news is Newfoundland and Labrador ranked highest in the country for happiness, so we have a head start. So next time you check in on how you're doing financially, be sure to also check in on how happy you are. You might find that you need to make a deposit into your well-being as frequently as your bank account. Well, that's our show this week. Remember, you can catch all of our episodes on VOCM.com or your favorite streaming service. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.